It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Kathy Diamond back again on behalf of the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library with a short monthly book talk. I hope that you are all well and on your way to getting vaccinated if you haven't already done so. It's so hopeful. The vaccine is here finally. The days are getting longer as spring approaches. And after a year of COVID living, it seems that finally there is a light shining down from the end of this long tunnel. And maybe we are not that many months away from once again being able to meet in person at the library for our monthly Monday morning book club talks. But in the meantime, here we are on a recording, or here I am on a recording. And the book that I'd like to talk to you about today is Amor Towles' first novel, which is called Rules of Civility. I know that many of you are familiar with his second novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, which became a New York Times bestseller for many, many months and the subject of many book discussion groups and many book talks. But his first novel, The Rules of Civility, was also a bestseller, spent many weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, and I somehow didn't read it before I read Gentleman in Moscow. So it's that book, the first novel, that I'd like to talk to you about today. A little bit about the background of the author. Amor Towles was born in 1964 near Boston, Massachusetts, where he was raised as well. He graduated, he went off to Yale University for undergraduate and received a master's in English literature from Stanford University. For his master's thesis, he wrote a series of five related stories that was published in the Paris Review in 1989. Tolles spent the next 20 years in the financial industry as one of the co-founders and director of research, one of the principals in other words, for a company called Select Equity Group, which is, was an $18 billion hedge fund. But during that time, as, as, this, as a person in the financial industry, he never gave up his dream of becoming a writer, an author. A decade into his financial career, he began to work on a novel set in the Russian countryside. But after seven years of working on it, he decided that it was no good and he tossed the manuscript. Finally, in 2006, he tried again, this time succeeding with what would become his 2011 debut novel, Rules of Civility. In 2013, he was able to retire from the financial world so he could devote himself to full-time writing. His second book, A Gentleman in Moscow, was published in 2016. According to Towles, the book was inspired by a business trip that he had taken two years earlier as he sat 
and watched and mused about the guests at the hotel that he was staying at in Geneva, Switzerland. He had noticed, and remember he's a writer and writers are, are noticing things all the time. He had noticed the same people in the hotel that he had met on or that he had seen on a previous business trip. And he began to wonder what it would be like to be trapped for decades inside a hotel. And he started to write his thoughts down on the hotel stationery, notes which he has kept to this day. And that, of course, became A Gentleman in Moscow. And a third novel is scheduled for release, I just read, this coming October. So October 2021, a third novel is going to be released, which is exciting news for us Towels fans. Amor Towles' stylish, elegant, and deliberately anachronistic debut novel transports readers back to Manhattan in 1938, a time just before the sharp lines between the social strata of New York City, or of, I guess one could say America, but this is a very New York novel, between the social strata began to be smudged by the leveling influences of World War II and the GI Bill. Rules of Civility takes its title from young George Washington, yes, President, former President George Washington's pamphlet entitled, and Washington wrote this pamphlet, and at the end of the book, in an appendix, Tolls gives us the whole book, or the whole little pamphlet, which George Washington called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. How's that for a title? And there are 110 rules which Washington considered to be very important if you were to be um, a person going around in, you know, in, in, in company, and this is how you should behave. So it's really fun to read all 110 of them. Towels writes with grace and verve about the mores and manners of society, of a society, in this case, Manhattan society, on the brink, on the cusp of a radical change, of radical change, because World War II and the GI Bill would change the way society was ordered. People who had belonged to one one stratum of society and were not ever considered that they would be able to move, now things, after the Second World War, things began to change. So this is the time period that Towles sets his story. He uses the device, what's the literary device that he uses to tell the story? It's a long flashback. The starting point, which he calls the preface, is the 1966 opening of a photography exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. So that's the preface set in 1966. And then the book goes backwards and reopens it. Well, the story opens on New Year's Eve of 1937. But the opening preface is is what sets the piece. And let me read to you a little, just a little bit, so you get an idea of what his style is like. 
On the night of October 4th, 1966, Val and I, and we don't know who the I is yet, the narrator, both in late middle age, attended the opening of Many Are Called, that was the title of the exhibit, at the Museum of Modern Art. The first exhibit of the portraits taken by Walker Evans in the late 1930s on the New York City subways with a hidden camera. So this walking around this photo, this exhibit of photographs, 1966 in the Museum of Modern Art, she, the narrator, turns out to be a she, she, she describes what this was like that there were people were drunk very easily and everyone was walking around and they weren't really so interested in, in looking at the photographs. They were more interested in seeing who was there and um, sampling the, the offerings of drink and of hors d'oeuvres. She tells, continues, a young socialite drunk in pursuit of a waiter stumbled and nearly knocked me to the floor. She wasn't alone in her condition. At formal gatherings, somehow it had become acceptable, even stylish, to be drunk before eight o'clock. But perhaps that wasn't so hard to understand. In the 1950s, America had picked up the globe by the heels and shaken the change from its pockets. Europe had become a poor cousin, all crests and no table settings. And the indistinguishable countries of Africa, Asia, and South America had just begun skittering across our schoolroom walls like salamanders in the sun. True, the communists were out there somewhere, but with Joe McCarthy in the grave and no one on the moon, for the time being, the Russians just skulked across the pages of spy novels. So all of us were drunk to some degree. We launched ourselves into the evening like satellites and orbited the city two miles above the earth, powered by failing foreign currencies and finely filtered spirits. We shouted over the dinner tables and caroused with all the enthusiasm and indiscretion of Greek gods. And in the morning, we woke at 6.30 on the dot clear-headed and optimistic, ready to resume our places behind the stainless steel desks at the helm of the world. Isn't this a wonderful introduction to 1966 Manhattan? This is how our narrator, we don't know yet, is describing it. And then she goes on to say that so she's walking through this exhibit and she notices these photographs. And she, among the photographs, she notices two of someone she knew way back when she was young. Continues, the 1930s, what a grueling decade that was. I was 16 when the depression began, so you can figure out how old she is. Just old enough to have had all my dreams and expectations duped by the effortless glamour of the 20s. It was as if America launched the depression just to teach Manhattan a lesson. After the crash, you couldn't hear the bodies hitting the pavement, but there was a sort of communal gasp and then a stillness that fell over the city like snow. The lights flickered, the bands laid down their instruments, and the crowds made quietly for the door. 
Yes, the hidden camera portraits of Walker Evans from 1938 to 1941 represented humanity, but a a particular strain of humanity, a chastened one. And so she sets the stage for this exhibit and these photographs, because these photographs are of people sitting in New York subways from in the late 1930s, and it's still depression. The, the First World War is just going to happen, but it's still depression, and things are still pretty bleak. And so these portraits of people on the subways that Walker Evans, the photographer, well-known photographer Walker Evans, a real photographer, uh, took are ones of people and sitting there with interesting expressions because they're sitting on the subway. And you can see the author has chosen to include every so often at the beginning of a chapter or a section, one of the photographs from the collection. So as you read the book, you get to see little bits of these photographs. Towell's engaging, plucky narrator, who it turns out her name is Katie Content, and her name is spelled her surname, K-O-N-T-E-N-T. And as she says to someone who meets her and mispronounces her name, that the accent is on the second syllable. The name is Content. As she says, state of mind rather than contents of a book. So Brooklyn-born Katie Content, nay Katya, of Russian immigrant parents, is 25 years old in 1938. Her father has recently died. We find out that her mother had abandoned them years earlier. Katie is a bookworm who diligently works in the secretarial pool at a downtown Manhattan law firm. Although she's clearly smart enough to have been one of the lawyers herself, had she had been born a, a, a decade or a couple of decades, an era later. But when she was born, what was available to young women who were able to type was secretarial work. And that's what she does. So she's living in a Manhattan boarding house until she can afford her own apartment. And there she meets Eve Ross, her friend who becomes her friend, a beautiful Indiana born young woman, same, same same age as as Katie is, who has fled the Midwest for the adventure of Manhattan. And the two of them are roommates in this boarding house. And Eve is is a very determined young woman. She says she's determined not to take any money from her father, from her wealthy parents who are back in Indiana. She's come to New York to try and find her own way. And her bottom line for refusing any support, any financial support from her father is, I am willing to be under anything as long as it isn't someone's thumb. So here are the two young women that we meet not after the preface, but when we go back to nineteen to New Year's Eve, nineteen thirty-seven, and so we find out that Katya has restyled herself, changed her name to Katie, which is a more clubbable name there in Manhattan in the late nineteen thirties, and she is aspiring to all American inclusion. As World War Two gears up and the depression years come to an end, raising the economy from bust to boom, Katie's wit and charm and intelligence lift her from the secretarial pool at the law firm to launch a 
a very, a very successful career. First, she becomes a high profile assistant to, well, first she works for a, a publisher, a publisher of Russian novels, and then she becomes a high profile assistant at a flashy new Condé Nast magazine. One night at the novel's outset touches off a chain reaction of events that will produce both Katie's career and Lanter, her husband, who is the husband that we find her with in the preface of the book in 1966, and will define her entire adult life. And Tolls likes to write about chains of events. In fact, he says, it, it turns out that he, in 1989, this is the author of the book, was set to go to China for two years to teach after he graduated university. But when the Tiananmen Square massacre put an abrupt end to that plan, he headed for Manhattan. On his first night in the city, he met two strangers. One would become his brother-in-law. Through the other, he found the job in which he worked at for 20 years, the job in the financial industry. What would have happened if he would have hit the town one day later? And it's this kind of improbable but true serendipity that plots the lives of people in their 20s, in whatever epoch they might live in. But before they know, when they're young in their 20s, before they know the weight that decisions made in a moment might have for the rest of their lives. And so this is what Rules of Civility is about. It's about what happens on one night that can affect the life of, and in this case, the life of this young woman, the narrator of the book for years to come. So on New Year's Eve, after we have the opening preface, the flash, we the author has flashes us back to New Year's Eve, 1937, when Katie and roommate Eve head for a village jazz club with $3 between them, intending to scrape by on one martini an hour and then to go off to a Ukrainian diner as 1938 dawns for a 15-cent breakfast of coffee, eggs, and toast. But enter a handsome man into this second-rate jazz club down in the village. As Tolls describes him, an upright 5'10", dressed in black tie, with brown hair, royal blue eyes, and he carries on his arm a cashmere coat so elegant that Eve can't take her eyes off it. She manages to get herself next to this elegant young man who seems a bit out of place in this second-rate jazz club. She instinctively introduces herself as Evelyn. So she too says it's all is all about recreating, rebranding oneself, changing one's name. So Eve becomes Evelyn when she introduces herself to this elegant young man in order to sound a little grander. The man's name, it turns out, is Tinker. How the wasps love to nickname their children after the workaday trades our narrator Katie notes, admiring him all the same. He stands them to drinks and even gallantly ventures out into the cold night to find champagne with which to toast in the new year. 
Not long after midnight, Tinker disappears, leaving behind a solid gold engraved lighter, like a male Cinderella with a zippo instead of a slipper. Will one of the girls of the roommates be adding his initials, the initials on this engraved lighter that he has left behind, to her monogram? We will have to see as the story progresses. Tracking him down shouldn't be hard because he's let slip that he lives in the Beresford, a luxury apartment building on Central Park West. So the two roommates decide that they are going to find this mysterious fellow with the beautiful cashmere coat and the initialed lighter, solid gold engraved lighter, and they go to search him out. But once they find him, is he going to turn out to be a prince like in the Cinderella story? And if he is, if he really is a prince, then why does he have, we the readers wonder as the story goes on, a heavily underlined copy of George Washington's notes on proper social behavior, the rules of civility of the title? Wouldn't such niceties come naturally to a prince or at least to someone raised in wealth in a certain strata of society? These are questions that the book is going to answer, or at least the author of the book in his story is going to answer for us as the, as, as the novel progresses. Tolls's central characters in the story are youthful Americans in tricky times, trying to create authentic adult lives for themselves, even if they have to change or adjust their names to do so. In New York City, Tolls writes, these sort of alterations come free of charge. The novel follows Katie through 1938, that's the year, the main year of the story, as her friends and circumstances shift and as social masks fall, rise and fall again. In Manhattan, she realizes a long memory is not always convenient. And from the beginning, the reader knows that after this eventful year, Katie will not see Tinker again for nearly three decades until she happens upon his image at the Museum of Modern Art while strolling there with her husband through the exhibition of Walker Evans's photographs of subway riders taken between 1938 and 1941. She spots Tinker in one of them, ill-shaven in a threadbare coat. And remember when we first meet him or when the girls first meet him in those opening scenes, he is cleanly shaven, elegantly dressed, wearing this beautiful cashmere coat. And it's this cashmere coat that attracts their attention. So in this photograph that Katie sees, 30 whatever years later of Tinker, the photograph shows him as ill-shaven in a threadbare coat. When she points out the photograph to her husband, that's in the preface, identifying Tinker as an acquaintance 
Her husband furrows his brow and says, huh, riches to rags. But Katie remarks, not exactly. Yes, she thinks Tinker looked poor in that picture, but he looked young and vibrant too, and strangely alive. For Walker Evans had taken that picture of Tinker the year that he had stopped trying to scale Manhattan's invisible mountain and took work on the docks. Standing on Pier 80, smoking, leaning against a piling, and admiring, as Tolls has him say, the whole staggered assembly of townhouses and warehouses and skyscrapers stretching from Washington Heights to the Battery, Tinker had thought that from this vantage point, Manhattan was simply so improbable, so wonderful, so obviously full of promise that you wanted to approach it for the rest of your life without ever quite arriving. And as Tolls shows in his novel, that too can be arranged. In this affectionate return to the post-Jazz Age years and the literary style that grew out of it, Rules of Civility documents with breezy intelligence and impeccable reserve the machinations of wealth and power at a particular time in American history. Tinker, echoing Gadsby, is permanently adrift. Katie finds her way. She makes it up from the Katya of Brooklyn to the well-heeled late middle-aged matron of Manhattan society that we meet in the opening preface of the book. Description rather than plot, although yes, there is plot, but it is the description that drives this novel. The characters are beautifully drawn, the dialogue is sharp, and the author avoids nostalgia and sentimentality which a lesser skilled writer might not have been able to when dealing with this material. It is an elegant performance by a first-time novelist, and remember, this is his first book, A Gentleman from Moscow Came After, by a first-time novelist who seems completely at home with his characters and territory. This is a welcome addition to the canon of New York stories. And this fall, we can look forward to another novel by this talented writer, which as he tells us, or at least I read in an interview, is set this time in Nebraska. So he switched setting once again. Something to look forward to. I wish all of you a good afternoon, good health, and thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, 
telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.